Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please also check out my other podcast, Kids Do Have Time to Read Books. I'm on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Kids Do Have Time to Read. So please follow me. And if at any time you have suggestions, my email is zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to my latest sponsor, the Mermaid Pillow Company, mermaidpillowco.com. They make these amazing pillows with sequins on the back and positive messages on the front. And they now even make custom pillows and blankets. It's an amazing company. And if you enter the code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you will get 10% off, which is super cool. So please check them out, mermaidpillowco.com. I'm so excited to be interviewing Katie Arnold. Katie is a contributing editor at Outside Magazine, where she has been on staff for 12 years. She writes a column for Outside Online called Raising Rippers about how to raise adventurous kids. She has contributed to the New York Times, Travel and Leisure L, and many other publications, and currently lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico with her husband and her two daughters. Running Home, a memoir, is her first book. So welcome to Katie. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. Katie made a special trip in from visiting New Jersey, so I feel particularly honored that she was willing to do that for this. (laughs) So can you please tell listener what your beautiful memoir called Running Home is about? Sure. Running Home, well, it's about a lot of things. Predominantly, it's about my relationship with running and with my father and how the two kind of converged after he died in 2010. And I was beset by this really kind of crippling anxiety. I just had a new baby. I had a toddler and an infant. And after he died, I became convinced that I was dying too. And I didn't realize at the time that that's not uncommon. It's not an uncommon way to grieve, but it was terrifying to me. And I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, so there's lots of alternative therapies and healing and healers. And I tried a lot of them over the course of 18 months. And I was really looking for a way to not worry so much. And But the thing that worked the best was the thing that had always worked for me, which was running. And it made a lot of sense. I've been a runner my whole life. But in some ways, it didn't make sense because I was terrified of dying. And, and so, and this wasn't, you know, running on the road. This was into the mountains alone on backcountry trails and real wilderness for many hours at a time. But I found that when I ran, I could run through and pass those worries. Like my mind would settle. It was became a moving meditation. And so the book is really a story about how I grieved my father and how running healed me and the wilderness healed me. And also about like the love you had for your dad yeah. growing up. I mean, I feel like there's a lot before yes. he passed away, like you that you captured yeah, from your he childhood was a huge, and huge influence on me, both artistically. He was a photographer for National Geographic, and so he really taught me how to see the world and to pay attention, which is what you need as a writer. Mm -hmm. And so he was a beautiful writer, but his medium was photographs. And I knew from a very young age, six or seven, that I wanted to become a writer. And so his way of capturing the world, like really paying attention to those moments, they're ordinary moments, they're beautiful moments, but there's something about them that you want to capture. And, And so just by osmosis, by being his daughter, I learned how to pay attention. So that, he was a huge influence on me in that way. And then he also taught me, you know, to find solace and inspiration outside in nature. So those two things, and, and that, that's a, a narrative in the story about how, how I became who I am, in large part because of him. And you have in the book that he said at one point, 
The most important element of a photograph is what you leave out, so as to frame only what is most significant. So I was wondering, is there anything you felt you left out in order to frame this story? Oh, so much, so much. I mean, the story always had to come back to my father, my relationship with him, and my relationship with running. And of course, there's so much more to me than both of those things. You know, my relationship with some of my siblings, my step-siblings. I wish, you know, that's a whole other book, <laughs> right? Being a blended family in the 70s and 80s. Anne Patchett wrote it's that. the next book proposal yeah. now. <laughs> Anne Patchett wrote that great, you know, she wrote a novel, Commonwealth, which I think, mm-hmm. you know, from what I understand was autobiographically based. So, you know, there's a whole story in that that couldn't be in this because it had to come back, you know, sort of to the main narrative. But yeah, there was some grief over the things I couldn't include, but I'm really pleased with the shape of it. The book always had its own momentum and energy, like running, often because I would run and then I would come back and write. And so I would bring that feeling into my writing. But the book always sort of told me what it needed and where it was going. And my job as a writer was to sort of listen and to let it let it be what it wanted to be. And there were many times when I felt the shape wasn't quite there and, and you know, I kept winnowing it, you know, and, and trimming out what wasn't essential. So when you went back to visit your dad when he was sick, mm-hmm. you said you wanted to, you had been working for Outside Magazine mm-hmm. for 12 years. Yeah. And you told him you wanted to yeah. write about being a mom. Yeah. And he said something like, pick something serious. Yeah. Well, something, he said, make sure, you know, whatever you write important. about, make sure it's important. Make sure it's important. Did that become the beginning of the book? Well, it was interesting because that was a sort of a hard moment because my father was sick at the time. And although, and his illness was quite short, so it progressed very rapidly. But this was still at the very beginning of it. And so he was still, you know, in good shape. And so when he said that, and I, and I, you know, I just just said that, like that came from deep within me. It had not been premeditated that I was going to tell him or even that I'd really been thinking about it. I must have been, right? And that's sort of the beauty of that intuitive voice, which is what the book is about a lot, like Mm -hmm. listening. Like we have our own answers. We don't need to grab things off the shelf and find the answers. And so that- Even as he says to you at the end, like when he says, listen to your own body. Yeah. Like listen to your body. I know. I feel like that's such a theme. It's like, Listen to your body, exactly. And so I said, you know, I want to write about being a mother, I think. And when he said, make sure whatever you write about, it's important, there was that moment of like, well, is this not important? And so that I could never, you know, find out what what he would think about this book, but I don't think I need to. I think that it did become, you know, important in its way. And so it probably was the beginning. I know it was the beginning of my writing about being a parent for outside. It was sort of that moment was Mm -hmm. the genesis of my column that I write called Raising Rippers about bringing up kids, you know, outside. And so, yeah, it's just funny when you look back, those moments that were defining. And and when he said that, it was a little bit of a gut punch, you know, of like, well, is is it not important? And he wasn't making that judgment, but sort of as his daughter, yeah. I was yeah. feeling Internalized. Yeah, <laughs> as we often do with our parents. Speaking of all the running mm-hmm. for a minute, when your dad was sick and you visited him at Huntley Stage, you went running in the midst of the illness. You said, my legs are heavy and slow, but I don't care. I'm not running for speed or fitness. I'm running to get out of the house and escape the dread of what's to come. I'm running to feel the humid air swoosh through my lungs, to feel normal again and just a little bit alive. I'm running to forget and to remember. Can you talk to me about like how you felt right then? Yeah, I mean, the grief in the house, even before he died, was so heavy. And it was a very physical feeling for me. And I had lost people that I loved before, grandparents. and But I hadn't experienced such an um, intense 
like close up experience with grief. And it was, it surprised me because it was so physical. You think it's an emotion, like in a sadness, but for me, it was a felt sensation. It was like a layer on my skin or a heavy, heavy coat. And I, and you know, I wanted to kind of scrape it off my skin. I would take these hot showers at his house thinking I could rinse it off. Mm -hmm. I even went home to Santa Fe and went to like the fancy Japanese spa on the mountain and got the salt rub and, you know, lying there as like the salt is literally in like, if I be of a little cut, it's like salt in the wounds. It really was that. And I got up and you know, she rinsed it off, and I was hoping I would feel better, and it was still there. And so in that moment that you just read about, that was on one of my trips back, it was just this, you know, in deep need to get out and mm-hmm. to be out in the open and in the fresh air and breathing in that clean air and um, just out of the cloying heaviness of grief, which, you know, I thought then when he died several weeks later that, that would, the grief would end. And I just, you know, little did I know, it was just beginning. And tell me more about the anxiety that came afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like, had you had anxiety like this? or had, I had never this- had, like, health anxiety like mm-hmm. that. I had had, no, I'd never had extreme anxiety at all. I mean, I'd had little worries here and there over things. And, you know, of course, when you become a mother. So I'd become a mother two years earlier to my daughter Pippa. And all of a sudden, that's a whole new level of worry that you've never experienced. So, you know, I'd had those moments of, like, I brought this creature into the world, and now I have to keep her alive. Mm -hmm. You know, normal mother stuff. But this was, like, I could hear a report on the radio or read, like, a snippet of a headline or the first paragraph in, like, the Modern Love column in New York Times, Mm -hmm. which for the longest time seemed like it was the cancer column in the paper. And I I could read that, and then I would think that I had those symptoms, and I would feel them. And I think it's a little different than hypochondria, although I'm not entirely sure. But it felt—I didn't go to the doctor all the time. I just—I was— afraid I was dying. And partially it was postpartum. Mm. It was grief. It was also a little bit of midlife. You know, I was probably at the time 38. You know, when when you lose your parent, you really do realize that you're going to die. And I think as that's what youth is, right? You don't know that or Mm -hmm. you don't believe it or it's not going to happen to you. And then you lose a parent and you realize it will. And you're a mother at the same time. And you're like, please not now. Ugh. So it was, you know, my my mind, I've always had a big imagination. I've been a writer since I was a young girl and a huge reader. And so the imagination is a great tool as a writer. But my imagination went a little bit haywire, and I had something new every week, I felt like. And this went on for about a year and a half. Ugh. I feel like you also have this added layer, I feel like, of pressure or something because you were a child of divorce and you didn't get to see your dad on a daily basis yes. growing up. And I thought you wrote about that in such a beautiful mm. way. My parents are divorced, okay. so I yeah. could relate to that part of that. And you wrote, if it's okay if I read sure. this part, it was so good. The heaviness in my chest is old and familiar. It's not quite grief, not yet, though I can feel that coming, but a hitch in my heart, a tick of apprehension. Something is missing, but I don't know what. I feel as young as the girl in dad's pictures. I'm homesick, that discomforting in-between feeling, not quite there, not quite here, that I felt my whole life with my father. Our relationship has been a constant cycle of coming together and moving apart. Hellos and goodbyes, the excitement of arriving, and the guilt of going, all twisted up like a tangled skein of wool. Happy and sad. Now that we're heading toward our last goodbye, the word has a terrible new meaning. Homesick. Oh, yeah, I know. So beautiful. I was like crying as I read all of this. Oh Oh, my gosh. That like intense in and out feeling, that like loneliness 
but you're not alone. Yes. It just stays with you. It's like... I think it's in your muscle memory as a child of divorce and that here and there and kind of a home in neither place. Although I will say, like, I had very loving parents mm-hmm. and, you know, we had very comfortable homes in both places. But something about going back and forth, it was leaving when you weren't quite ready and and that apprehension of what would be waiting for you when you got there and how would it have changed since you were last there. And then, you know, the awful feeling of leaving because I did only see my father four or five times a year, which now in this, in this day and age of divorce is, you know, that is so different. Kids are going back and forth all the time. So the leavings were always hard. I mean, it, my dad's face was just the saddest thing on the planet. And so that feeling of, of kind of being in between, betwixt and between, I don't think ever goes away. No, I'm like the one who has kids. Yeah, I'm divorced and remarried. Right. And I so didn't want to be that yeah, person right. where they could see my sad face. So sometimes, like, I remember at the beginning, I would like say goodbye at their dad's and I would have to like hide behind the cars on the street and like cry and make sure nobody like leaned back to see me. Like, <laughs> it's so hard to protect yourself and like your I kids. Know. And I don't know, caring. But the worst is when you have to feel like you have to carry the emotions of your parents. Yes. Right. And like, I and think that, like, delicately, like, carting it around and, um, that's that's a lot for a child. Right, you know? and you have these loyalties, and who are you loyal to? And you think you have to choose, like it's right. a them or, you know, it's an either or. And this was also new, and, you know, we certainly weren't talking about it. So it was just going into my little seven-year-old body yeah. and brain. And, you know, again, my parents were so loving. No, yeah, and exactly. they And they got, you know, they kept it together, and they got along and didn't ever speak ill of each other, which was an incredible gift incredible. But as a child, when you don't know what's going on and you don't know how all of a sudden you ended up in New Jersey when your father's in Virginia, you start to make up stories and, you know, you want to solve it. It becomes a mystery. And I think, I think that's a large part why I became a writer. I mean, I'd always had that urge, but I think you're trying to solve your own story. Mm -hmm. And so did you ever get any formal writing training? Like, I feel like you're such a beautiful oh, writer. thank you. No, seriously. And I went back and I read a bunch of your essays online. <laughs> oh. and I love your column. I'm like printing out the oh, Brave great. Girls one for oh, my right. daughter. Just the way you see things, mm-hmm. even a simple topic becomes really like literary and beautiful. Right. So does it all come naturally or did you take any well, classes or do you have a workshop? or A little what? bit of both. I've just always written and I'll mention this because it just happened yesterday, but I was in New Jersey at a reading and my fifth grade teacher came to see me and Aww. she was hugely influential in my life in that when I was in fifth grade, so nine or 10, I wrote a piece, a story, and she recognized something in it. And she became kind of a champion for me and a believer, even when many times I didn't believe. And I write about this in Running Home, but my sister, who's older than me, had a typewriter and was, quote unquote, the writer in the family. And you know, when you're a kid, you make up this weird logic, like my sister's the writer, so I can't be. So I always had that tug a little bit when we were talking about that, you know, betwixt and between, like, am I or aren't I? Like, I want to be, but Mm -hmm. my sister is. So anyway, this fifth grade teacher, she really recognized it and named it in me. And that stuck with me. And I just kept writing, but I didn't take creative writing classes in college or anything, again, because I'd had that storyline in my head. Right. You know, and that's what this book's about, too, is the stories we tell ourselves that 
hold us back, like that one. And then the ones ultimately, like this book, I hope, that set us free. But I became a journalist at Outside, and I really learned how to write there. And it was it suited me. But I've also always kept notebooks. So I write in notebooks, and I capture those moments that I was talking about earlier. And they don't have to be for anything. You know, it's either like a, something I observe on the street or a conversation I overhear or I thought I have about something. And I'll write it down, and there's no pressure for it to be perfect or beautiful. But it's just something I know caught my eye. And that's something that my father taught me. He always carried notebooks and little steno pads in his pocket. And one time he gave me one, and he just had labeled it, things my dad says I won't want to forget or something. And so I learned from him how to, you know, be an observer and take notes. And that's a big part of it. So to write like that, like it doesn't have to be for something, Mm -hmm. becomes that writing practice that was influential to me. And when I met my friend Natalie Goldberg, who is quite well-known writing teacher and student of Zen, and she teaches her students just to write and not edit and to fill their notebooks. And so I would do that. I did writing practice for many years. I still do. And that's really my, when you write that way, you might start writing about an apple and then you might end up writing about your mother. Mm-hmm. You know, and in the course of that 10-minute writing exercise, you see your, where your mind goes and the leaps. And that's really the practice I do. And then you can take situations like the horrible one with the man attacking mm-hmm. you on the path and you turn it into something I feel like that must be so, like to get some sort of closure on it when in actuality there is nothing. No. I mean, how do you cope with knowing, like back to anxiety, I guess, for a little bit and running by yourself on these trails, that things can happen? I mean, you wrote a whole essay, which mm-hmm. was so great about like people ask you, are you afraid right. to run alone? Yes. And you listed the like 57 things why you should be yes. afraid and whatever. But then, you go anyway. You go anyway. Do you feel like the people in your life, like your husband and your kid, do you feel protective of you in these situations? Do you feel like you're ever being like reckless or? Yeah, I, I think about that a lot because the stakes are obviously higher now that I'm a mother. But I think in the piece you're referring to, I was attacked on the trail. And that's a chapter in the book. And this was when my daughter was four months old and we were hiking. I was hiking with her on the trails that I had hiked every day of my pregnancy. Very familiar to me. And the man was caught and he went to jail for a period of time. But now he's out again. And I see him occasionally. And I do sometimes wonder, like, it is kind of a marvel to me that I came through that and not only went back to the trails, but then began running mm-hmm. ultra distances alone. And I think what that, what that episode taught me is that I can protect myself and my strength is running. You know, because as he came toward me on the trail, I ran. And in that moment, I realized that I'm strong and that I'm fast and that that can save me. But I think I had to put it way away. Mm -hmm. I think I had to tuck that way down because of how horrifying it was. And, and, you know, he could have killed my daughter. Mm -hmm. And that, as a mother, as you know, you kind of can't think about that. Right. You really can't. Like, you just Mm -hmm. have to close that door for a... So I tucked it away. But then I got... I had systems, as I'll call it. Like, I would always tell my husband where I was going. I bring a friend... Before I had a dog who could run with me. I brought my friend's dog. I always carried my phone, though a lot of times I was out of range. I carried pepper spray. So there were things I could do to mitigate risk. But it seemed to me, and it became clear to me, that not going out 
into the wilderness or onto the trails was a greater risk to me than going. And I think my husband, he, you know, he thinks about it, but he knows that we have those systems and, I, and he knows how important it is to me. But I think about it all the time, the risk of it. And so it's not just that you run, it's mm-hmm. that you've become this ultra runner mm-hmm. and you compete right. and you run like, so what's the longest you've ever run? So the longest is 100 miles. And I ran that last summer at the Leadville Trail 100, which is, you know, very prestigious race. If you know the book Born to Run, it's the book that Chris McDougall writes about. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic race. It's eight more than 800 people, but fewer than half finish the course. And so that was... And you did it over what time period? I did it in 19 hours, 53 minutes. And I was I won the race. I was the Amazing. first woman. I know. It was a convergence. You know, I write a lot in this book about how things come up at certain moments. And mm-hmm. there's almost like a magic to them, a serendipity, and things align. And that was certainly true with a lot of my dad's material that he left behind that I found after he died that form this sort of secondary narrative in the book of discovering who he was as I was discovering who I was as a runner. And this material he left, it was all very documented and organized. Mm -hmm. And a different kind of person would have, right after he died, gone in and just gone through it systematically. And that's not how my brain works. I'm more intuitive. And so I came to things bits and pieces. And everything kind of seemed to come and show itself to me at the right moment. And that's really how Leadville felt. It was a convergence of my, like, real essence, you know, as a mother, a writer, and a runner on one day. I was basically in, like, a 20-hour flow state of just, you know, tapped into something bigger than myself, for sure. Wow. Yeah. How do you even eat? How do you eat? So I eat energy gels. I eat goo. The, The kind I use is goo. And they're my sponsor, which is, I've been using them forever. Each packet has 100 calories. So I need about 200 calories an hour. So that means I'm eating, you know, one every 30 minutes. And then I drink electrolyte drink that has like 200 calories a bottle. So as soon as I start spacing out or if I get klutzy or trip on rocks, I know that I'm behind on my calories. It's amazing. Yeah. Do you ever think about doing something more like the Olympics or some... I mean, they don't have trail running or ultra running. I know, running. don't they have the marathon? Yeah, that's a whole, oh my gosh, that, the marathon seems way more terrifying to me than, like, running, running fast. running 100 miles. Yeah, running fast on the road for 26 miles seems way harder and more wow. scary to me than, you know, a slower 100 miles. No, I love just being in the wilderness mm-hmm. and being in the mountains. You know, the running is so important. As a writer, that's how I, you know, that's my creative process is being in motion, but it's also being in nature and being, you know, feeling that there is a larger force out there and that it is big enough to hold you. And you feel small in it, but in a good way, not in an I'm insignificant way, but that I fit into something bigger and I'm connected. And so being in nature and it's hard, like, I, I can't think which is more essential. Is it the running or is it the wilderness? And I think that's why... It, being an ultra runner is so beautiful because it's the two combined. Wow. That's just, that's just the coolest. <laughs> yeah. like, I can't imagine the stamina and all the stuff, I mean, physically and emotionally. Yeah. And Well, it's very mental. And I mean, running is very physical. I'm not going mean, to, 100%, you have to be running. Uh, you know, 100% of the time you're running, like your, your legs are moving. But your mind mm-hmm. is such a great way to study your mind because in the beginning part of the race and, or a run, and I talk about this in the prologue, you know, you're excited. What's mm-hmm. happening? What's going to come? And in the middle, you're sort of in that, like, 
you know, every little thing that you feel in your body becomes a worry. Like, is this a problem? Is that, you know, and you have to work through it. And in a way, that's why meditation is so good because it trains you or you learn how to not attach to those thoughts. Like the thoughts will come Mm -hmm. completely. When you're running 100 miles, invariably you will think many times probably, am I going to make it to the end? Time to stop. (laughs) Am I going to trip and fall or am am I going to get lost? And if you were to attach to all those thoughts, you probably wouldn't finish. So what you have to do is just see them and say, oh, there's that thought again. And, you know, if I have a pain in my ankle early on in the race, I will consciously think, like, okay, I note that thought, and then I'll, I'll just tell myself, like, if, this, if I'm still thinking this or feeling this in three or four miles, like, okay, then I can take it more seriously. But basically, it's just my way of saying, like, I see you, like, next, you know, move on, and don't get hooked on those thoughts. So it is a meditation, you know, and you have to be kind of vigilant. Like, you won't, you're not going to not have the fears, But the trick is to just see them and then let them pass. Wow. So now that you've finished writing this book, Mm -hmm. and when did you write this book? Like, what was your process? Did you write it at night? Did you write it? Oh, when? During the day? Yeah. Like, when actually? Like, I wrote it all over the place. So I wrote it, my general sort of best kind of day, and every day is different as a mother, a writer, and a runner, right? Right, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I would run first thing in the morning. I would get the kids off. Then I would go for a run. And then I would come back and work. And so I would sit at my desk, and my by desk I mean my either my kitchen table or outside under the portal if it was nice out. And I would usually work, so I might be at my desk by 11 and the kids are in school till three. And then I wrote a lot at night. And so then, you know, we would get the kids to bed around eight and then I would often write from eight till 10. And would you do it again? Did you enjoy 100%. it? 100%. Yeah. I loved it. The book was a flow state. I'm not always, just like not every day when you run, do you feel great and does it feel effortless? But the book very much wanted to be told and there was just magic around every corner. And I think that was because I was willing to let the book show me. And any time, like the few times that I got all bossy with the book and thought I was in charge, like I would hit the wall a little bit and I would find that resistance and things weren't flowing. And then I realized I had to just step back and just listen to the book. So I would do it. And then I, of course, I also wrote while running. Mm-hmm. And I would get, you know, sentences would come or if I, if I didn't like a way a paragraph was sounding, just, you know, you absorb that in your body. And as I would run, it would sort of like jostle itself loose and then it would reassemble itself in the right way with the right words in my head. And you would actually remember it. I would either try to remember <laughs> it. I had this, this whole system. I would either just try to hold it in my head. And then I realized then I was holding too many thoughts. Mm-hmm. And as I was running, I was trying not to forget them. So then I started carrying a little note card shoved down my sports bra with a pen. And I would stop and write them. But then they would get all sweat smeared. <laughs> I would get back and I couldn't read them at my car at the trailhead. And then I, you know, because I carried my phone after I was attacked for safety, I would type them into my phone. And then I was pretty much the last person to discover voice memo on her phone. Mm-hmm. And so now sometimes I'll talk into it. So I do all those things. And then, but more even than the actual sentences that are rewritten while I run, it's that feeling of running, that flow and that momentum and the rhythm. Writing to me has always been like music, and running, you know, gives me that cadence. So then I'll just come back and write from that place. It's like the running is the instrumental part, yeah. and the words are the like the, the, lyrics, le- yeah, the, the lyrics. Yeah, the lyrics. Thank you. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's like that's how you make the. Anyway, 
Very cool. <laughs> I know we're like almost out of time. Tell me what you see coming next for you. More of these ultra running, De- I mean, whatever. I've got a race. It. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I've got a race on Saturday, which I kind of can't believe. What's today, Monday? Yeah. I'm running 100 kilometers on Saturday in Virginia, so like, 62 miles. I'm like, don't ask me my I know, it sounds sort of absurd. But yes, I'm running a race. I've got a couple other races on the calendar, and I'm, I'm writing. I'm working on my next book. Oh, good. Yeah. What's and that about? It's sort of a deeper exploration or a continuation of this story that it starts with this very traumatic wilderness accident I had in 2016 on the Salmon River in Idaho when I broke my leg, and then goes through and sort of looks at how my body had been very strong. I trained my body, but the question became like, what if my greatest strength as an athlete is not my body, but my mind? Mm. And so it, it, it's a deeper look at how I use mindfulness and meditation to train myself as an ultra runner and as a writer. And then it you know, concludes with the Leadville that day that was just beyond expectation. Like it, it made, in some ways it made no sense that, you know, I'm in my mid forties that this could happen, but it was, it, it was such a mental, you know, I had done all the work and it, everything just came together. Wow. So great. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Write things down and just keep that notebook or keep your phone or your voice memo and write things down even when you don't know what it's for. It doesn't have to be for anything. I fill notebooks like one a month of my, you know, the the kind of notebook I use. I've used the same kind forever. And a lot of times I don't know what it's for. And then only later you know, when you have a little bit of distance on it, can you go back and see the narrative? In fact, that's what happened with this book. I mean, for many years after my dad died, I did not know I was writing the book. I was writing in my notebooks all the time about the grief, the anxiety, the details of losing him, and the running. And, and I didn't know what the running was for, but I allowed myself to be in that place of not knowing with it. I mean, there was a scene in the book where my husband, who's very patient, and you know, we give each other a lot of freedom, even he was starting to get impatient. He was like, what is this for, this running? And I said, I don't know, but I know that it's about more than running. And I was just in the thick of it, just but doing it. And then later, when I had that distance, like literal miles under my feet, could I I look back at those notebooks and see that the, that I had really been writing the book in the notebooks, okay. and that to trust yourself again, you have the answers inside, not someone else. You know, if you think something is interesting or there's a story there, you know, write it down. And I always just keep something by my bed because I think like. You know, I get a lot of ideas just as I'm falling asleep, like in that neither here nor there place, that liminal space between wake and sleep. And a lot of times I'll be too lazy to turn on the light and write it down. Always write it down because in the morning you'll try to remember what it was and it's hard. It's awesome. Thank you so much for coming Thanks, on. Thanks, Time to read books. That was great. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks again to my sponsor, Mermaid Pillow Co. Mermaidpillowco.com slash Zibby. Enter code Zibby for 10% off. Thanks so much. Check out those really awesome giftable pillows and blankets. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 